This is Dr. Marty Freed, Dr. Shreya Trivedi, and Dr. John Huang. This is the Core IM Five Pearls Podcast, brought to you by Clinical Correlations, bringing you high-yield, evidence-based pearls. Today, we're talking about hepatic encephalopathy. Special thanks to Dr. Sonia Olson, a gastroenterologist at NYU, for peer-reviewing this podcast. All right, let's get started with five questions on the pearls we'll be covering. Test yourself by pausing after each of the five questions. Remember, the more you test yourself, the deeper your learning game. Question one, approach to diagnosing hepatic encephalopathy and its precipitants. What are some diseases that are often misdiagnosed as hepatic encephalopathy? And what are the most common precipitants of an acute episode of HE? Question two, what is asterixis? And what is the diagnostic utility of a cirrhotic having signs of asterixis? Is it just about putting your hands up and stopping traffic? Is it diagnostically helpful? Question three, what is the role of lactulose and rifaximin? How do lactulose and rifaximin reduce symptoms of hepatic encephalopathy? And what are indications for each? Question four, hypokalemia and hepatic encephalopathy. What's the connection between hypokalemia and hepatic encephalopathy? Question five, serum ammonia level in hepatic encephalopathy. What is the discriminatory power of an ammonia level in HE? What situation does ammonia have a stronger predictive value? So, patient comes in confused. You see in the chart they have liver disease, and they have had prior hospitalizations of hepatic encephalopathy. Done, right? Not quite. First thing you should do when you have a cirrhotic patient with altered mental status is stop and ask yourself, is this altered mental status in fact due to hepatic encephalopathy? AKA, is there a decreased clearance or accumulation of waste products causing the altered mental status, or is something else causing the change in mental status? Marty, what are some things you've seen house staff or other providers misdiagnose as hepatic encephalopathy? Well, there are several other life-threatening conditions that depress consciousness. Patients with liver dysfunction are inherently coagulopathic, and brain bleeds are not always obvious especially if they have a history of alcohol abuse and they're at high risk of falls. Patients with acute or chronic subdural hematomas may have focal signs on neuro exam that might help clue you in that their symptoms are not due to hepatic encephalopathy. Also, remember, alcoholics can be malnourished and are at risk for Wernicke's encephalopathy. And you might think about Wernicke's as this classic triad of confusion, ophthalmoplegia, and ataxia. But keep in mind that only one-third of Wernicke's patients have all three, and 37% have only one. That's a great point, Marty. And in a similar vein, uh, we think about sedating drugs and medications and also withdrawal delirium, uh, whether from alcohol or benzos. And I should bring up that withdrawal delirium isn't always accompanied by signs of autonomic activation. Another reason for cirrhotics to be altered is that patients are often on diuretics, right? So hyponatremia is often a common insult or confounder or simply hypoglycemia. Providers can often get tunnel visioned and forget to get a finger stick on presentation. Other things not to miss? Encephalopathy as a sign of sepsis. In terms of infection, don't forget about SBP. And most patients don't have pain or fever and often present with fatigue and altered mental status. So especially in cirrhotics, it's worth grabbing the bedside ultrasound and seeing if there's a pocket of fluid to tap. I think my toughest case in terms of differential was a cirrhotic patient with a BMI in the 40s, his CO2 on the VBGs was greater than the 70s, and I had to think twice, hey, is this altered mental status from CO2 narcosis or hepatic encephalopathy? I've definitely been there before too. And how did you figure it out? 
So luckily we had collateral from the neighbors and they said, hey, he's been sleeping more for the last few months during the daytime, slower, and he had run out of his meds a week ago and didn't get the chance to pick it up. And subsequently his mental status has gotten much worse. All right. So you thought he's probably hypercapnic from OSA or OHS for a while now, but in the setting of not taking lactulose, he wasn't excreting these toxins and that led to a much worsened mental status. So let's use this as a segue. Once you've tried to get as much of a thorough history as possible and ruled out other causes, the next step is figuring out the precipitating factor. And as you mentioned, Treya, with your patient, a common culprit is non-adherence to lactulose and rifaximin. Yep. And if the patient is adhering to the meds, there are four other buckets I like to think about. Number one, look for infectious sources as a precipitant. Number two, is there increased generation of ammonia, such as from a GI bleed, which is a rich source of protein that is intrahepatically cycled? Or is there increased azotemia, high levels of urea from overdiuresis, volume depletion, acute renal insufficiency? And just as we want to think of causes of increased generation of ammonia and urea, we need to think there's something compromising that already fibrous liver from clearing these products. Right. That brings me to my third bucket. Some conditions that compromise a liver clearance of these toxins are alcoholic hepatitis, portal vein thrombosis, hepatocellular carcinoma, or increasing shunting after a TIPS procedure. We'll have a link in the show notes of a clinical correlation spotlight about worsening hepatic encephalopathy after TIPS. Lastly, electrolyte disturbances such as hypokalemia can definitely increase ammonia levels and precipitate HE. And we'll talk more about this later in a later pearl. Okay, so to recap, the most common cause of hepatic encephalopathy is non-adherence to lactulose or rifaximin. But the other four categories that we should think about infection, increased generation of ammonia or azotemia, decreased clearance of ammonia, or electrolyte disturbances. So we all know to check for asterixis in our cirrhotics. I mean, read any H&P or listen to any presentation about a cirrhotic and it's mentioned without fail. But let me ask you, what is that sign actually good for? Whether it's there or not, can you actually do anything useful with that information? Is that a trick question? Okay, let me break it down like this. Say I admit a cirrhotic with confusion and I see asterixis on exam. Is this patient more likely to have hepatic encephalopathy as opposed to some other cause for his confusion? I want to say yes, but I feel like the answer is no. And uh, conversely, if I don't see asterixis, does that suggest a diagnosis other than hepatic encephalopathy? To answer that question, let me ask you a more basic one. Marty, how are you checking for asterixis? I feel like I'm checking the same way everyone does. So I ask the patient to hold their hands up and stop traffic. Wrists extended, fingers outstretched, and I watch for flapping. Marty, I notice you're careful not to call it a flapping tremor. That's a great point. It's important to remember that asterixis isn't an actually a tremor. It's a form of negative myoclonus. Right. And actually, sure, we should clarify for the audience because we use the word myoclonus colloquially to mean a muscle twitch. But strictly speaking, that's positive myoclonus, a sudden involuntary muscle contraction. Right. Negative myoclonus is the inverse, a sudden involuntary lapse of muscle contraction. Kind of like when you fall asleep from standing up, almost collapse, then bolt right back up in a split second. That's asterixis, a momentary loss of posture. Kind of sounds like my entire intern year on rounds. <laughs> no, no comment. Um, but actually, Shreya, that is a good analogy because you can elicit asterixis by asking the patient to maintain any posture. Ask them to walk, stand, or sit upright, and you might see their whole body jerk. Or ask them to dorsiflex their feet, and you might see a foot flap. 
There's even asterixis of the tongue and of the eyelids. Actually, one doctor invented a new maneuver for asterixis after he got tired of having these loopy cirrhotics try to keep their arms up and convince them to do that. His solution? He asked them to squeeze his hands tightly in a handshake. Cirrhotics with asterixis can't maintain a steady squeeze. Some people call this milkmaid's grip. Good to know there are other ways to check for it, but what does this have to do with the diagnostic power of asterixis? Well, since asterixis is, as we just said, a disorder of posture, it usually means there's something going wrong in the subcortical brain structures that regulate movement. That would be the thalamus and the basal ganglia, right? Uh, among others, yes. Case in point, unilateral asterixis is a sign of a lesion like a stroke or a mass in one of these structures. It turns out these areas of the brain are some of the most metabolically active tissues in the body. That makes them uniquely susceptible to any kind of toxic insult, not just liver dysfunction. In that vein, uremia, sepsis, alcohol, drugs can cause asterixis. And don't forget medications like classically phenytoin, electrolyte abnormalities like hypokalemia or hypoglycemia, uh, carbon dioxide narcosis like in your patient, Shreya. Yep, and as mentioned before, there are other causes of encephalopathy, and asterixis can be a sign of any of these encephalopathies. And what about its prognostic value? I feel like asterixis suggests more severe hepatic encephalopathy. Is that true? Well, if you conclude a patient's asterixis does represent hepatic encephalopathy, then yes, that is not a good sign. And that's because once a cirrhotic develops overt hepatic encephalopathy, mortality increases steeply. Some studies from the 1990s quote a one-year mortality on the order of 50%, though to be honest, those high numbers probably reflect unusually sick patients. So I know that certain events are landmarks in the progression of cirrhotic disease, so like ascites, hyponatremia, varicocele bleeding. They imply that the liver has deteriorated to a critical point beyond compensation, and they are associated with worse outcomes. Are you saying the same is true for asterixis and hepatic encephalopathy? Yes, that, that parallel is accurate. But I just want to emphasize that asterixis and hepatic encephalopathy, they are not synonymous. I think asterixis tends to stand out in our heads because it's a particularly dramatic motor manifestation of HE. But remember, the patient's chief complaint is never going to be, I have asterixis. They're going to see you in the clinic and complain about forgetfulness or insomnia, or they're dragged into the ED by a family who say they've been agitated or irritable or they're just not themselves, or they're found out by EMS in the street. Anyway, these kinds of changes in arousal, mood, personality, cognition, these are all possible manifestations of hepatic encephalopathy, not just asterixis. And it's important to note that all these different manifestations that John just mentioned won't appear at the same time or in parallel. Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest, between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian-approved meals right to your door, ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from calorie smart to protein plus to keto. And don't forget, they have 60-plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites, so you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital's cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouth-watering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With Factor, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash 50 Use the code coriam 50 
to get 50% off. That's the code CORAM50 at factormeals.com slash CORAM50. Treatment for hepatic encephalopathy centers around reversing any underlying cause. And it's important to reduce the amount of ammonia absorption from the intestinal lumen. The less ammonia absorbed, the less it enters the brain and worsens the patient's mental status. So to do so, we're going to reach for non-absorbable disaccharides and antibiotics. Most commonly, that's lactulose and rifaximin. Ah, guys, this is my favorite pathophys to go over. All right, let's hear it, Shreya. <laughs> so first, we need to understand what makes lactulose different from other disaccharides. It's non-absorbable. So it stays in the intestine and goes to the colon. And no, it doesn't raise your blood sugar. When it reaches the colon, the colonic bacteria break it down into short-chain fatty acids. And I'm emphasizing acids because it acidifies the lumen of the bowel, converting ammonia, which is neutral, into ammonium, NH4+, trapping it into the lumen and finally being excreted in the stool. Bye-bye. Are you just as excited to explain rifaximin? No, it's not as sexy, but still cool. So rifaximin reduces ammonia-producing bacteria by inhibiting RNA synthesis and cell division. <laughs> Solid review. Thanks. <laughs> All right. Now, tell me, for a patient's attack of HE, what should we start with in terms of treatment? Lactulose is first line for both treatment of hepatic encephalopathy and for prevention of recurrence. This comes from both historical habit and cost-benefit considerations. And rifaximin is thought to be a very effective add-on to lactulose. But when do you add it on? So it's AASLD's recommendation to add rifaximin to lactulose after the second episode of hepatic encephalopathy. This is a grade 1A recommendation. Exactly. Just to show how effective of an add-on agent it is, when rifaximin with lactulose was compared to lactulose alone in a double-blind RCT, those were on both lactulose and rifaximin were more likely to have complete resolution of hepatic encephalopathy, 76 versus 44%, and they also even had a lower mortality, 49 versus 24%. You know, I didn't know those numbers, and they're surprisingly impressive. So let me ask, is there any role for these non-absorbable disaccharides and antibiotics as primary prophylaxis in cirrhotics, you know, those who don't have a history of hepatic encephalopathy? Yeah, that's a great question. So unfortunately, there's no role for primary prophylaxis yet. The data just doesn't support it. And when you think about how often our patients have to take these medications, so every few hours and titrating to multiple bowel movements per day, it's really no wonder why we often see them presenting due to non-adherence. And once our patients are on these therapies, standard of care is to continue secondary prophylaxis indefinitely. But there's very little data on this. One thing to keep in mind that I didn't know until reading the guidelines more is that you can use other oral antibiotics. These would be metronidazole and neomycin. They were actually used historically before rifaximin came into the picture and can still be used if rifaximin, if for whatever reason, is not available. But it's not as attractive of an option because metronidazole and neomycin do have the side effect of ototoxicity and neurotoxicity with long-term use. Hypokalemia usually presents before treatment. These patients are often malnourished, also often develops during the treatment. Lactulose is a cathartic agent, remember? But do you guys know that hypokalemia can actually worsen hepatic encephalopathy? I did not know that. This is an obscure but important fact. Hypokalemia stimulates the kidney to produce ammonia. Now you can imagine why that would be a problem in cirrhotics. John, I'm going to need you to explain how hypokalemia stimulates ammonia production. <laughs> Unfortunately, that part isn't well understood, though I can explain some theories. 
Probably the simplest explanation is that hypokalemia causes intracellular acidosis. Remember that when you're hypokalemic, potassium shifts out of your cells and into the extracellular fluid. And since potassium is positively charged, hydrogen ions go the opposite way into cells to maintain electroneutrality. I see where you're going with that. Potassium comes out, hydrogen goes in, the cell's pH drops. It's like hypokalemia is tricking our renal cells into thinking the entire body is acidemic. Right. And normally, when the kidney senses acidemia, they break down glutamine into ammonia and bicarbonate. Then the bicarbonate enters the blood and buffers whatever excess acid is causing the problem. So, in other words, ammonia is the kidney's way of counteracting metabolic acidosis. The problem for cirrhotics is that inevitably some of that ammonia gets back into the blood. All right. So, it seems like the takeaway here is that hypokalemia stimulates ammonia production in the kidneys. And there are tons of reasons why a cirrhotic would be hypokalemic overdiuresis, poor nutrition, an alcoholic who's vomiting, even diarrhea from lactulose. Yeah, absolutely. Hypokalemia in cirrhotics is common, and correcting it in hepatic encephalopathy is essential. Actually, studies have looked at the association between potassium levels and outcomes in patients with hepatic encephalopathy. And the data suggests patients who have even low normal potassium levels, around 3.5, they do worse than those who are normal kalemic or even slightly hyperkalemic. And by that, I mean worse mental status, even worse mortality. Hmm, that sounds like a bonus for using spironolactone in our cirrhotics, keeping that potassium up. So bottom line for our discussion, be careful to avoid and to correct hypokalemia in patients with hepatic encephalopathy. So anytime a patient comes into the ED and an ammonia level is set in a cirrhotic, I remember as a med student, as an intern, resident, tons of attendings would have their eyes roll back and sigh and say, oh, why would they even get that? And then pimp me on what's the utility. And I'd say, oh, uh, there, there's no utility given seeing their reaction and their eyes roll back. And, and I never thought about it more. But let's dive deeper into ammonia levels. <laughs> so... It's true that some studies have shown a statistically significant correlation between higher ammonia levels and the severity of hepatic encephalopathy. Yes. Right. But the problem here is that normal ammonia levels can be seen in advanced hepatic encephalopathy, and high levels are often seen in the majority of patients with no or minimal hepatic encephalopathy. Exactly. Meaning the discriminative power of ammonia is poor. And I think this is a great example of something that's statistically significant, but clinically just doesn't correlate. Not to mention elevated levels of ammonia, those are also seen in other forms of toxic metabolic encephalopathy. That's like the running theme of our podcast. Very good to know. <laughs> also, I was reading, uh, I think this came up in my Twitter feed, actually, a Journal of Hospital Medicine Choosing Widely Guidelines. They were commenting on how ammonia measurements can be highly imprecise due to techniques such as fist clenching or the use of tourniquet can falsely increase levels, as well as the time to processing can also make these values off. And so for those reasons, the AASLD agrees that there is no role for ammonia measurements in the diagnosis or management of hepatic encephalopathy at this time. But there is one place where ammonia does have prognostic value. Turns out in our patients with acute liver failure, getting an arterial ammonia greater than 200 is associated with higher risk for cerebral edema and herniation. We'll link a cool paper about this in the show notes. All right, let's cement some of those take-home messages more. 
Pearl one, try not to anchor on hepatic encephalopathy in your altered cirrhotic patient. There are other important life-threatening conditions that depress consciousness and tend to be misdiagnosed as hepatic encephalopathy. And while I'm at it, don't just automatically chalk up hepatic encephalopathy to medication non-adherence. A precipitating factor is identified in the majority, 50 to 80%, depending on the study of hepatic encephalopathy attacks. So think about other insults, infection, increased generation of ammonia, azotemia, decreased clearance of ammonia, or electrolyte disturbances. All of these can cause your patient's hepatic encephalopathy. Pearl 2. Asterixis is a lapse in postural control, not a tremor. And there are many ways to check for this. Asteriscus reflects abnormal function in brain structures responsible for alertness and posture. Because this dysfunction is not specific to cirrhosis, asteriscus can be seen in other forms of toxic metabolic encephalopathy, especially in thalamic and basal ganglia lesions. And remember, asteriscus is only one symptom of hepatic encephalopathy. Changes in cognition, affect, personality, arousal are equally as important. Pearl 3. Given the pathophysiology of hepatic encephalopathy, our goal in treatment is to reduce ammonia absorption from the intestinal lumen. In addition to treating reversible causes, there are two major categories of treatments, antibiotics and disaccharides. Pearl 4. We talk a lot about the gut, but don't forget the kidney. It generates ammonia. Hypokalemia increases renal ammonia genesis and can precipitate or worsen hepatic encephalopathy. So correcting hypokalemia in HE is essential. Pearl 5. There is no role for ammonia measurements in the diagnosis or management of hepatic encephalopathy, though there might be a role in acute liver failure. All right. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions, please email us at coreimpodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at at coreimpodcast. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at coreimpodcast. Opinions expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent the opinions of NYU or other affiliated institutions. Do not use this podcast for medical advice. Instead, see your own healthcare provider for medical care. All right. Thanks for joining us. See you guys next Wednesday. Take care. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.